Um, we're just singing about the holiness of God, and uh, I don't know about you, but I, I personally have an v- interesting relationship with the holiness of God, because uh, I think often we slide to heaven's view of that in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and uh, verse um, 8. It says that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So in in many ways, this holy, holy, holy concept is the song of heaven. It is the repeated words of those who encounter the living God in eternity. And that feels a very exalted thing, right? Right? That, to me, is heaven's view of God's holiness. Isaiah 6 is earth's view of God's holiness, where uh, Isaiah encounters the Lord and the angels come in chapter 6, verse 3, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah, in an earthly encounter with God's holiness, he wanted to be under the chair. Do Do you know what I'm saying? And I think often we have, this is the sermon before the sermon, I wasn't planning on saying any of this, just responding to the music. You know, I think often we have this heaven's view of holiness, but we're still on earth. I think sometimes we fail to remember how amazing God is and how we ought to maybe approach him with great caution. Because eh? he's different. Holiness means he's not like anything else he's unique he's different there's no one else like him and when you encounter him i'm not sure your response on earth would be to throw your hands in there and say how great you are i think your response would be i think i better get under the chairs before he kills me because he's so different than me and he's so much more pure than i am so i always struggle with that personally i just thought i'd make your struggle too so now now whenever you hear those holy songs, you're going to, oh man, we're singing the heaven holy part. I don't know if we got the earthly holy part down. Anyhow, the, these are the strange things that happen to me when I'm just sitting and musing and pondering, and I apologize for dragging you into that, but it's why I'm here. So here we go. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed how strong a thing belief is. This is Memorial Day weekend. And uh, we remember, right, those who laid down their lives because they believed in something. I suggested a couple weeks ago when I was up here, if you find a reason to die, you are a dangerous person. Uh, A lot of people have reasons to live. There are a variety of reasons to live. Have you found a reason to die? And when you talk about Memorial Day, we stand in honor of those who laid down their lives because they believed in this country. Right or wrong, misguided, whatever. Those women and those men who put on the uniforms and laid down their lives so we could have our freedoms to hate each other is what it feels like today. I apologize for that. I'm not in charge of that. They laid down their lives so we'd have the freedom to have differences of opinions, to have a robust debate, to be able to sit here today and sing holy, holy, holy in, without worry to being arrested, right? Don't you admire their beliefs? Aren't you grateful that they believed in something so much that they laid their lives down for that? And for all of you who 
put on those uniforms for us. I know this isn't your weekend, so I won't honor you in that way, but I'm still going to say thanks to you that you gave your time, and you may have a friend who gave their lives, and we should never forget that as Americans. It actually kind of drives us to the cross in some ways, doesn't it? That Jesus laid down his life for us so we could be free. It's a beautiful picture. Belief is a strong thing. It causes people to climb into airplanes and fly them into buildings. Some of you are so young that that didn't happen in your life. It blows my mind how old I have become in my own skin. Um, belief has caused people to start world wars and try to dominate other countries. Today, belief causes people to question their gender and to think they can just change it so that they can become whatever they think they want to be. Belief will cause someone to hate or to love. But if you believe in the right things, it can also cause you to overcome. What you believe in can be a pathway to over, overcome whatever your addictions might be on this earth. And they could come in a variety of forms. The world wants to call it conversion therapy. We call it salvation. It's not therapy at all. It's just transformation, and it's amazing. And when belief comes in your heart, you're never quite the same, are you? See, belief is a very, very powerful thing. Now, if you're a guest today, thanks for trying our church. If you came back, I'll repeat things that I've said before. We're kind of a Bible-toting church. I don't know if you notice, people carry their books in with them. They do that to check out the dude on the platform to go, that dude doesn't know what he's talking about, or I disagree with him, or I'm here to learn. And some folks might call us Bible thumpers, but I would prefer to say we we are the thumpies. You know, the Bible comes and thumps us and transforms us and molds and shapes us and we cherish it. And so we are in the book of Philippians and going through it to learn what God has to say for our lives. And if you're not here with the Bible, there's some in the chairs and it's page 981 if you're interested in turning there as we go to chapter 3. Now, if you're there, you might put your finger in. I'm going to have you do something I've never done before. And you may recognize this. And if you'll bear with me, uh, we'll see if we can get along. But I'd like you to hold your Bible up in the air if you have one. If you have a phone Bible, that's okay. Phone Bible, Thomas works. Some of you have iPads. And, and if you don't want to feel left out, grab the one out of the chair. There are no hymnals. It's going to be a Bible, guaranteed. Are you ready? You're going to repeat after me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. And I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, the indestructible, the ever-living seed of the Word of God. I will never be the same. 
Never, never, never. I'll never be the same. That's pretty good, right? I don't know if you believe that or not. Hang on to those thoughts. Some of you may have recognized that. I stole that. Let me just confess that up front, and I'll come back to it in a second. I'm going to teach this morning from verse chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, but they're so tied to what comes before. I'm going to do a quick review flyover of chapter 3 and just point out a couple things that takes us to those verses. These are important issues with regards to your faith in Christ, okay? And so we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and Paul points out a need here. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and now this last phrase, and is safe for you. So here's the need that he points out. We need a safe place for our beliefs. We need a place we can go where our, we, this is a good thing. I'm going to safeguard your heart by what I'm going to write to you is what Paul is saying. And I would suggest to you as we open our Bibles today, it is my hope that this is a safe place for your beliefs. He follows that up though with a reality check in verse 2. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now flip the page if you would and go to verses 18 and 19, same chapter. For many of whom I've often told you now and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. You see, in chapter 3, he says, this is, I'm going to write this because this will keep you safe. But here's the reality. Church might not be the place that is safe. That's a horrifying thought. You thought you walked into the bubble of safety this morning. And what I would like to suggest to you is church is not always a safe place. He is addressing the church at Philippi and saying, watch out for the dogs. Those are the guys among you. Look out for those who are actually enemies of the cross. The reality is, you guys, that churches are filled with imposters and attackers. And this whole chapter is written to teach you how to survive and thrive in spite of the sneak attacks. Now, I just had you do, this is my Bible. Guess who I stole it from? Joel Osteen. You're all going, I wonder what time church starts at Broadway Christian. I think we can get there. (laughs) I want you to think about that for a second, because you liked it. Because it's actually pretty good. And now you're going, I don't don't appreciate you doing that to me when I, I I don't like it when you sneak attack me like that. Because you have some reservations about Mr. Osteen, don't you? When you hear the statement, I am what it says I am, you're like, that's right. Unfortunately, Mr. Osteen doesn't teach all that it says that you are. You can decide for yourself if he is a sneak attack inside the church looking guy who's after your faith or not. 
The point I'm trying to make is this. The reality for the Philippians and the reality for us is you think church is a safe place. I'm just telling you it's not. The Christian concert, the Christian bookstore, uh, uh, the, 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 the podcast, the websites, I've got I to update my thinking for you. Uh, all of those things that because they're under the name of Christ doesn't necessarily mean they're safe for the growth of your faith. And what's particularly difficult is they're usually interwoven with things that are true. You know, it's kind of like giving your dog the medicine, you wrap it in peanut butter, and stuff it down their throat, and it's like, oh, yeah, I love the peanut butter, and the, oh, he gave me the medicine in the middle. You get the idea? There's a pill inside the peanut butter here, you guys. And Paul's telling them, this is your reality. He kind of defines it then for them and gives some biblical clarity to who these dogs are in verses 3 through 8. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but he basically suggests this. There are two obstacles to your faith that are commonly held to be true in church world. Are you ready? Obstacle number one is your heritage. How you were raised, what you were taught by your mama, what you were taught by your grandparents could often be wrong. But it's your mama. Who's going to go against grandma? She crochets you such cool stuff. And she can make so many things out of two-liter bottles. You would not believe the things grandma can do with a two-liter bottle. How could she be wrong about spirituality? And what does it mean for her if she believes stuff that's wrong? I say all that coming out of a heritage of Romanian Orthodoxy. I was born a Romanian person. That means you're an Orthodox Romanian religious dude and they would take us to church and I would go to church and I don't know what they were talking about because it was in Romanian and I'm like the third generation American and we didn't speak Romanian and all I knew was the guy swung the thing and it smelled funny in there and the women sat on one side and the men sat on the other side and we had a big meal and that was the best part of the whole day because the Romanians can flat out cook y'all and it was amazing and there was this little card table with shots of whiskey all over the top of it at the party after church. I didn't do anything about that. I just was able to, you know, look over the top and smell it. You know, you get the idea. Anyhow, it was just this weird, this, that was my religious background. And when I was introduced to new life in Christ, I have to look at everything my father and my mother gave me, and I have to say, am I going to hold on to what my heritage is or am I going to allow faith to now define my life? Let me hit pause there for just a second. It doesn't mean there's no truth in the Orthodox Church, you guys. There's truth all around it. You go read their liturgy and you go, that's pretty good. And, you, and then you try to go, how did you get from that to worshiping that statue? How, and, you, and it kind of blows your mind. Um... From there, I went through the Lutheran Church to just to round out my spiritual journey and was confirmed in the Lutheran Church and went through Luther's small catechism. Go read Luther's small, good stuff, really good stuff. 
and I was just at a friend's Lutheran funeral, and the guy was preaching. I'm like, he's pretty good. He's doing a good job. And then he goes, and we know he's in heaven because he was baptized as a baby. And I wanted to go, no! And I was sad. You all have some spiritual heritage. It might even be Baptist. It might be Pentecostal. It might be all these different things that have a bunch of truth in it. But if you hold on to your heritage more than the faith reality, you're in problems. The second issue is ceremony. They are of the circumcision, Paul says. We're the true circumcision. They're going to hold to rule-keeping, ceremony-following, law uh, 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 guidance, if you will, and they're going to live this legal life of, well, I, to, to, to my point, I was baptized as a baby in the uh, Romanian Orthodox Church. That should make me good. In case I didn't get that right, I was confirmed in the Lutheran Church. That's got to be good. I was baptized, rebaptized in a Baptist church, and now I'm a Muslim. So I got it all covered <laughs> along the way. Kind of really not a Muslim, if you know. But you get the idea. There's a lot of stuff being poured into this thing. And as this new church in Philippi is growing, the people come, and there's people in there saying, hey, you know, we're the originals. We're the Jews. We're the first ones. Jesus was a Jew. Let us tell you how to do this faith thing. You got to be circumcised. You got to do this. You can't eat that. You got to go to this on this day. You got to genuflect at this moment. You got to get up at this moment, and you... You can't wear those kind of clothes, and on and on and on and on it goes. This heritage and ceremony thing then ends up with a reality, and the reality is a man-made salvation. And it is a man-made salvation that the Apostle Paul will never accept. You know why? Because God is the author of salvation, not you. Get in line. Enjoy the provision, but don't act like you did it. So there's some biblical clarity there. These are two obstacles. He follows that up by saying there's really only one opportunity. So verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's nothing else. I just know Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. What things? All the stuff that were good to me. That's verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 9, and now I'm found where? Class, where are you found? Thank you for following along. In Him. I'm no longer found in me. I'm no longer found in my works. I'm no longer found in my Father's faith. I'm no longer found in my ceremonial cleansedness. I'm found in Christ. And I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he says in verse 9, but that which comes through faith in Christ, ready, the righteousness from God. And isn't that what you want, dear friends? The righteousness that you can produce is really, Isaiah tells us, filthy rags. Paul calls it rubbish in this passage. It's garbage. But the righteousness from God, it depends on faith, verse 9. 
that righteousness then takes me to the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that I will obtain from the resurrection of the dead. Jesus replaces my heritage. Jesus replaces my ceremony. He becomes my righteousness and my resurrection. It was already worth coming to church just for that, wasn't it? Now, all that's the introduction to get to our actual text. What does it mean then to follow that faith? So Paul writes to these Philippian believers and he says, here's what believing in Jesus does. Now that you've believed in him, let me encourage you to do this. In fact, we're going to see in our passage, he says, this is one thing that I do. I don't know about you, but when, when the Bible says, this is one thing I do, I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to write that one down. If there's only one thing, let's make sure I do the one thing. So now we're up to verse 12 in a conversation about spiritual realities in following Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read our passage now for today. And I thank you for being in church this morning. Hopefully you've been encouraged already. Ready? Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, that is the resurrection and all the things that came before, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Pray with me, would you please, Father, we're grateful for your word. It has already strengthened our souls and challenged our misbelief. We pray for us this morning, Lord, that uh, where we fall short, we will find you to be faithful. Thankful that you wrote a Bible for us, that we could follow it and learn from it and draw near to you both in knowledge and in spirit and in joy and in commitment, and I pray this morning, Father, that you would fill us, fill us with greater resolve about how great you are, how amazing your Son is, and what a cherished thing it is to be able to call you Father, and not only that, but to have you call us your children. So as your children, we pray, help us understand your will. And give us the courage to follow what we learn. May you come and meet with us. Help me to speak well. Moving forward in this message in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So, what does it mean to follow Christ then? That's what Paul says. And here's the first thing that he says out loud, which is actually quite interesting. And that is this. I've not already obtained perfection. Um, this is the guy who wrote much of the New Testament. This is the guy who 
has the great doctrines of salvation in the book of Romans that we all cherish. And he's saying, I haven't reached it. It is definitely a swipe at those who say that they are sinless on this earth and that there are some church folk, again, who teach that you can, by virtue of your your obedience, come to a place of spiritual perfection, and yet the guy that God uses to write most of the New Testament said, I'm not there. I, I have not arrived. This is different than heritage salvation. If you go back to verse 6, where he says, uh, let me find it here. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, what's the next word? Blameless. You see, in heritage salvation, I can check every box. Because I'm going to create the boxes that need to be checked. And so when I get those boxes, I'm going to go, yep, did that, did that, uh, took communion, put some money in the plate, uh, uh, did the baptism thing, loved one of my neighbors a month ago, good, got that one covered, on an, and okay, I'm good to go. There's no fault in me. But when Christ is your Savior, you recognize that you are bankrupt to begin with and bankrupt afterwards, but what you have is a banker who is full. And so I have not already obtained, I am not already perfect. It is an interesting journey. I would call this a healthy distrust of self. And I think it is something for all of us to consider in our own spiritual walk. Do not become puffed up and arrogant and so believe in you. Continually fall on your face and beg for mercy for your failures. Continually con uh, uh, seek the face of God so that you can grow and develop and become more mature, which I'll get to here in just a second. Do not for a moment act like you have arrived. In the midst of that, he says, um, um, not that I have obtained this, but I do something else. I press on to make it my own. The motivation for pressing on is that Jesus is the one who has made me his own. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I am compelled to live this Christian life because of Christ. He's changed my existence, my person, everything about me. And he has, has brought me to the place where I press on because of him. He made me his own. Uh, I, I love this passage. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, if you're, uh, let, me, let me get the page number for you. Ah, I didn't write it down. I'm so smart. Well, it's still in 2 Corinthians 5 regardless. I apologize if you're following along in the other book. Uh, if you're in Philippians, you go backwards. You'll see Ephesians, Galatians. Then you'll run into 2 Corinthians, heading back to the front of your Bible. Um, in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says an amazing thing. The love of Christ controls us. Um... There's two ways of looking at that statement. That is, it's Jesus' love of us that controls us, 
or it's our love of Jesus that controls us? Which one do you prefer? They're both pretty good, right? When you see something like this, and you look at what we're looking at in Philippians, you're now getting down to the motives for how you live your life. What's the internal uh, clock that's wound inside of you? What is it that makes you you? If there is a love of Christ in you, it compels you to follow him. It could be your love of him. More than likely, it's his love of you. Jesus is the one who has reached out, and he has made me his own. When he made me his own, I now have an internal motor that never existed before. And it causes me, to the text says, to press on. It causes me to give great effort, because that word exactly means strenuous, vigorous activity. I press on because Christ has made me his own. I once was lost, but now I'm what? I, 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 I was what? And now I'm... I was blind and now I can see. How did vision come to you? You know what Paul's saying? It didn't come by following ceremonies. And it didn't come because your parents could see. There are a lot of children in the room. Kids, this faith thing that your parents, you know, they drug you to church today. Most of you would still rather be in bed. I get that. You cannot live off your parents' faith forever. Kids, you have to believe. You have to make it your own. You cannot say, because my parents believed, I automatically, it doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. There comes a point in a young Christian child's life where they have to look heavenward and beg for forgiveness for their own sins. And they have to take that faith that their parents had and say, I recognize it as truth and I want it for myself. Jesus will make you his own. Now, before I leave this idea, um, can I dispel one of the discouraging things in the Christian life? And that is this. Um, My lack of perfection causes me to want to give up. I was really committed one time, but boy, I fell flat on my face. Therefore, it's not really worth going on. You have listened to two satanic lies at that point. Lie number one, you owe it to yourself to do this thing, whatever that thing was, that whatever your stumbling block was. doesn't really matter. You can pick it out. Everybody has some. And so that stumbling block camps out at your door again and your love of money overwhelmed you when you had that, I don't know, I'm just making it up. Your anger overwhelmed you, your lust overwhelmed you and the mouse was in your hand. We could go on and on and on about whatever it is that causes you to trip up that you go, I will never do that again until the next time you do it. And then you're like, oh, I can't do this. I give up. 
So lie number one, I owe it to myself to do this. You followed that lie, which took you down the rabbit hole of guilt and shame and conviction, which leads you to the second lie, and the second lie is way more devastating than the first. You ready? The second lie is, well, now that you've blown it, you can't ever go back. Now that you've failed, you're not allowed back in the club. If you believe the first lie, you'll be miserable until you confess your sins. If you believe the second lie, you'll live a life of bitterness, misery, and doubt uh, for as long as you walk this earth. You will get to a place where you won't even know if you've ever believed previously. But I can never forget that prodigal son story. Can you? You know, the stupid son... Oh, I'm not supposed to say that in front of the children. I'm sorry, children. We don't use the S word in church. I apologize. Just You can save your parents an email there. Yeah, okay. It's okay, Mom. He, he confessed his sin. It was okay. Um, the foolish son took his inheritance and went, and he blew it all. And at the end of that life, he said, I wonder if my dad would let me be a hired worker on his farm. I think I'll go home. And you remember the story, it's so beautiful. And the father sees him from a far way off and the father does what? He runs to the son. He didn't even wait for the son to get all the way. When he runs to the son, he throws his arms around him and the son has his prepared speech. Dad, I know I was really a moron and I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father's like, I don't care. Get a ring, get a good robe. We're having a party. My son was lost and he is found. And this is what happens when sinful children return to their father. They find a father who's still just as pure and holy as you were just singing about. And he's the father who wraps his arms around you. And the picture is so fabulous. And if you've never experienced the warmth of your heavenly father's embrace after failure, I don't know what you've been doing in your faith. Hmm? But if you believe the second lie, I've blown it, I can't ever go back. Here's a guy writing the Bible, says, I haven't arrived. I, 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 I'm not perfect. And yet, in the midst of my imperfections, what do I do? I press on. I refuse to give up because I am weak. I refuse to give up because I am uninformed, I am ignorant. I refuse to give up because I am foolish. In the midst of that, Christ has laid a hold of me. I will not stop. I must press on. Now, in the passage, pressing on is a twofold thing, which is actually one. It's very interesting. So he says this, brothers, um, I don't consider myself to have made it my own, but one thing. By the way, the I do is not there in the original. One thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies, that sounds like two things. Doesn't that sound like two things? There are two acts of one play. It's actually one thing. If you only do one of those, you haven't done the thing. You've done half of the thing. And so the first thing you do is forget what lies behind. What am I supposed to forget? It doesn't tell us. I'm going to give you my best idea. I think it's heritage and ceremony. 
What lies behind me? Paul listed it in verses 4 to 8. I was this. I was that. I was this. My mom had me circumcised. I didn't vote on that. No one would vote for that, I don't think. That's just my understanding. I don't know. As an eight-day-old, I don't think the kid goes, yeah, I think, no, let's leave that alone. Anyhow, and I'm from the right people, and I'm from the right tribe, and I, I was a student of the law, and I persecuted. I was everything I was supposed to be. And those are the things that are behind me. I've got to forget all of that baggage that says I was righteous and understand that it is Jesus who made me righteous. So forgetting means one half of the equation, and I press on, I strain forward to what lies ahead, which means I give maximum effort. Most scholars say Paul's gone into a race metaphor here, a track and field metaphor, where the runner comes around the last turn and stretches for the finish line in order to win the race. They give maximum effort even though their thighs are burning and they're exhausted, and all they want to do is take a nap. There are way too many church folks who have taken naps and not pursued the race. And he says, so I, 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 I come, this is the one thing I do. It's a two-parter. I'm not going to worry about the good stuff that are credit to me because that's actually junk. And I'm going to press on toward the high calling of God in my life. That's my one thing. Um, This is a huge move, you guys. This is a move. I started this message talking about the power of belief. This is a move away. Or at least um, independent of family. It is a move that is independent of ceremony, what I did. I accomplished something. This is a move of faith in Christ who rescued me. And it is Christ who opens up these eternal realities to me. And I am compelled because he grabbed a hold of me to follow him. This is what it means to press on. So I've not reached perfection, but I don't give up because of that. I keep on moving. Which takes us to verse 15 and what maturation looks like in following Christ. So this Christ-centered life is a life that looks forward to what is to come that I may know him, verse 10, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in my life. It is the process, you guys, where you begin to live an embarrassing life. A life that makes no sense to those who are around you. You're so naive. You're going to give up all the pleasures of this world. You're going to give up all the joys of this planet for an eternal reward, a future prize. 
What kind of fool are you? Right? Is that not what people see of folks who walk by faith? They're so different. The gathering of money isn't as important to them. How they spend their time isn't the same as how I spend mine. I can't believe they get out of bed on Sunday mornings and go sit in little rows and sing songs and listen to some dude talk about an ancient book. What a bunch of weirdos. How you feeling, weirdos? You get the idea here? We, we, we are unique in this world by viewing life through the lens of faith. We are compelled by the love of Christ. Um, prior to my salvation, I knew exactly what Sunday morning was for. It was to recover from whatever I did on Saturday night. I had no specific place of recovery. Sometimes was at home. Sometimes recovery began on Saturday night. That means you passed out somewhere. For those of you who are uninitiated in such things, thank the Lord for that. But to go to church was a complete waste of time, effort. They're always such sourpusses there. Look, look what I did to your joy this morning on the holiness of God. I ruined you today. You, you came in here and your hands were up and you're excited and then pastor comes and goes, oh, we ought to think about earthly, oh gosh. Uh, and you're like, oh God, why do I want to go to church and be with those people? They're so serious. When's the last time they tied on a good one? They don't know how to party. You guys, we look like complete morons to the world. And if we don't, maybe we're not living out our faith quite the way we're supposed to. Perhaps our lack of moronic position on this earth is a testimony of a contamination of our lives. Hmm? So he goes on. Here's what he says. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. So here's the first thing. Mature believers think differently. Their mind is trained. It is trained toward the perfection of heaven. It is trained toward the upward call of God in their lives. Uh, let me give you two examples. How am I doing on time? Uh, I'm Okay. Let's go to James chapter 1, uh, page 1011. I put this in the margin of my notes and said, bonus material if you have time. And the music folks got done plenty early today. You get bonus material. Count it all, this is James 1, 2, a, a very famous passage. I probably didn't even need to make you turn here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, here's the exact same word that's in the Philippians text, mature, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. 
So as Christ followers go through their lives, they are pressed upon with various trials. These trials, you guys, are not absent-minded trials. They are sifted through the hands of your heavenly Father. And he sifts those trials and lets them touch your life for a reason, to grow you. You go, I don't want trials. I don't raise my hands in church for trials. And yet these are the things that cause us to be who we are. We are trained through the struggles and the difficulties. Do you remember what Paul said in our chapter? He says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. I think we forget about the suffering. We all, oh, I want that resurrection thing. That's what I get at the end. In the meantime, I share in his sufferings, and those sufferings teach me his ways. They teach me to think differently than I've ever thought before, because what you find in the midst of that struggle is the hand of your heavenly Father. It is there that he touches your life, and you go, oh, I might not have known you were there had I not experienced this difficult thing. I might have taken you more for granted had I not experienced this difficult thing. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, page 977. And now all of a sudden I feel hurried. Lack of time. Where is Ephesians? Anybody know? There it is. I just told you. It's on page 97. What did I say? 977. In verse 11, uh, it says, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the sadness of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed about. So two things come to help you guide your thinking. Trials and teaching. As you submit yourself to the teaching of God's word, as we talked about here, my mind is ready. What, 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 what was our little pledge here? Let me read it again. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. We are trained and we grow and we become mature. We learn to treasure eternity more than comfort and popularity. We are not fad-driven Christians looking for the next spiritual high. It has been, I, I've been here so long. I know I have mold growing on me. I get that. I've been here forever. Do you know how many Christian fads I've seen come and go in 35 years of pastoring this church? They sweep across the landscape with the latest book. And everybody's, oh, did you read such and such book? And we're all praying the prayer of Jabez with all of our heart. You guys remember that one? While we run the seeker movement because Hybels has 10,000 people up in Chicago. And we'll have 10,000 people if we just have a drama team and, and, and a rock band and, and a light show. And we, and we could go on and on and on and on. And the fads, they just keep coming and, and, and you can get swept up in that, you guys. But to think differently is to have a mature perspective on life because you've been tried and you've been taught. And those two things have built your heart for whatever comes. 
so that you're not swept around by every wave of doctrine. Um, <clears throat> last week, uh, Tim Keller died. Tim was the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. I was reading an article this week. Um, I don't know if you know who Carl Lentz is. Anybody, do y'all know who Carl Lentz is? He ran Hillsong in New York City, and it's scandalized and all that good stuff. Yay, another one. Uh, anyhow, this, there was this guy who wrote an article who in his college years lived in New York City, and he attended both churches every Sunday for a couple of years. And here's what he said. I was built up by Keller. I was entertained by Lentz. Yikes. Which one do you want? Hmm? Which one's going to help you through the storms of life? The light show and rock band? And I love rock music. I'm, I'm a little concerned what Christians consider good rock music, but that's another story for another day. It's like, really? Could I put some Jethro Tull on so you know what it really sounds like? Could, 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 I, could I educate you in the ways of Led Zeppelin along the way? Because you have no idea what you're doing, but you bounce around on the platform like you are really special. Anyhow, I got to go. I'm, I'm running out of time now. They grow differently. So, so first, they think differently. And then in verse 15, it says, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. There is a reality in the life of a true Christ follower that when they start to stray, God starts to press. And I don't have time to read you all the passages, but you can go to Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, and look up what it means to be disciplined by the hand of your Father, who only wants to produce righteousness in you. And that discipline comes when you get things wrong. He helps you get things right. There are two Old Testament verses that are favorites of Christians to claim. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. You know what that means? It doesn't mean I get a convertible. I really like convertibles. Anyhow, with stick shifts that go fast and corner very sweetly, I like them. And I love him. He should give me a convertible. But that's not what it means. Delight yourself in the Lord, and you know what he does? Puts new desires in your heart. He'll give you the desires of your heart, you guys. You see, he comes to you and he, he says, oh, you're my child, let me show you how to grow. The second one's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which you all know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? He'll make your paths straight. And that doesn't mean a straight aisle. It means a level place to put your feet. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and you don't lean to your understanding, guess what you get? God's stability in your life. Isn't that beautiful? This is what he does for us. You grow differently. Third, you live differently. Uh, in verse 16, uh, only let us hold true to what we have attained he writes, uh, it is a heavy military uh, analogy, and it basically means this, you march to a different drummer. 
you hold on to the, you keep in step with all that God is. Nothing gets out. The, 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 the us of the army, you'll notice the author joins his readers in, in his writing. He says, let us hold to what's true, you guys. I know I'm writing and I just told you that I'm imperfect. I've not already obtained. But let us hold to these things. And one of the things you have to admire, I'd say, about Tim Keller is he died well, didn't he? Now, I think he's a little confused about baptizing babies. He didn't write and ask my opinion about that. I don't know if you knew that or not. And I'm sure he thinks I'm pretty confused about not baptizing babies because he was Presbyterian. And, well, I'm not. But I got to tell you, that man made a difference with his life. Do you know he never wrote a book before he was in his 50s? Smart. Because if you write a book before your 50s, you have to write the book in your 50s to take everything back you wrote before your 50s. That's the, how it goes. Hey, you know that book I wrote when I was 30s? Wrong! Everything was wrong. So thinking, growing, and living with the one thing in mind, the call of God on our lives. This is who we are. The hymn writer said it something like this. Onward, Christian soldiers. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads us against the foe. Forward in the battle see his banner go. At the sign of triumph Satan's host will flee. On then Christian soldiers on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices and let your anthems raise. Listen to verse 3. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers and sisters, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body. We, one in hope and doctrine and one in charity. This is our battle. These are the marching orders that we have. And so I finish with the final question for all of us to ponder. I hope it helps. Is your spiritual journey defined by heritage and ceremony or by a maturing faith in Christ? It is a worthy question for your Sunday morning. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for your word, its guidance in our lives. It has weighed heavy on us this morning, we confess, but it has called us to an upward life of righteous living. We bow before you now because we know we're not perfect, but we ask you for the courage to press on in spite of failures and in spite of past victories. We live with you today. We need your guidance. We welcome your discipline. Teach us your ways. Give us a stable place to put our feet and delights in our hearts. These dear people came to this place today, Father, to hear you. Let them leave with their hearts full, their minds and hearts challenged to press on and do the one thing you ask them to do. 
please answer this prayer if you would. Amen. God bless you.